Cyberwork and InfoSec would like to introduce you to our new Cybersecurity Beginner Immersive Boot Camps. They're designed to help you gain and enhance your expertise in the cybersecurity field. Join our live interactive virtual classes led by InfoSec's highly skilled instructors who will guide you through the material and provide real-time support. And as part of InfoSec's Immersive's training, each student will have access to career coaching aimed at helping them start or switch to the cybersecurity field. You heard that right. We aren't here to just teach you the concept of what a security professional does. We want to prepare you to enter the job market with a competitive edge in six months' time. Now, I've told you about InfoSec certification boot camps, and if you're trying to hit your next career target and need a certification to do it, that's still your best bet. But if you're an entry-level cybersecurity professional or want to be, or you're switching your career and want to experience a career transformation, InfoSec's immersive boot camps are designed to make you job ready in six months. To learn more, go to infosecinstitute.com slash cyberwork, all one word, C-Y-B-E-R-W-R-K, and learn more about this exciting new way to immerse yourself in learning with InfoSec. And now, let's begin the show. Welcome to another episode of the Cyberwork with InfoSec podcast, the weekly podcast in which I talk to a variety of industry thought leaders to discuss the latest cybersecurity trends, how those trends are affecting the work of InfoSec professionals, and offer tips for those trying to break in or move up the ladder in the cybersecurity industry. Today's episode is the audio component of a webinar we recorded in November titled Digital Forensics and Incident Response. Is it the career for you? For those of you who are fans of both cybersecurity and cybercrime procedurals, a career in digital forensics and incident response, or DFIR, might seem like the best combination since chocolate and peanut butter. But are you on the right path to pursue this career track? Join Cindy Murphy, president at Gilware Digital Forensics, and Jeff Peters, product marketing manager training at InfoSec, as they discuss how to get started in digital forensics and incident response, different careers related to DFIR, the types of work done by DFIR professionals, lessons from Cindy's career in law enforcement and at Gilware, plus we took DFIR questions from live viewers. And now I'll turn you over to Cindy Murphy and Jeff Peters, along with our moderator, Camille Dupuy, for our webinar entitled Digital Forensics and Incident Response. Is it the career for you? All right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, so hello everyone, thank you for joining us on today's webinar, Digital Forensics and Incident Response, Is It the Career for You? My name is Camille Dupuy and I will be moderating today's webinar. So we will go ahead now and move on to the good part, which is introducing our speakers. So first I'd like to pass it off to my colleague, Jeff Peters. He is the Product Marketing Manager here at InfoSec. Hello everyone and thanks for joining us. Uh, really excited to have with us today Cindy Murphy, the president at Gilware Digital Forensics. Uh, Cindy Murphy is, as I mentioned, the president of Gilware Digital Forensics, uh, which is an incident response, cyber risk management, and digital forensics firm based here in Madison, Wisconsin, along with InfoSec. Uh, she is a prominent figure in the digital forensics industry with over 20 years of experience. She began her career in the military and then law enforcement, where she first established the Madison Police Department's Digital Forensics Unit. She has instructed thousands of digital forensics professionals across the globe and continues to lead the Gilware team as it investigates incidents such as ransomware attacks, business email compromise, intellectual property theft, insider threats, and more. 
Uh, so very excited to uh, get her insight knowledge on all of that and what it is like to be a digital forensics professional. Thanks for joining us today, Cindy. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, yeah, so what, what you can expect from today's webinar, um, we're going to talk just a little bit about, you know, what digital forensics and incident responses in general. Uh, then we'll get some advice from Cindy on, you know, how you can get started in, you know, as a DFI professional and, you know, what her, how she got started in there. Uh, we'll talk about a few of the different career paths, you know, some of the skills and job tasks uh, that you could do as a, as a digital forensics and incident response professional. And then I think the bulk of the webinar we'd really like to use to, uh, you know, kind of go through some of those uh, like case studies or examples of actual, you know, um, incidents or, or jobs that you would actually be doing, you know, as an entry level or mid level or, you know, senior person in the field and, uh, you know, get some good stories around that. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll save some time for Q&A. Uh, and also, if you have any questions throughout the webinar, feel free to drop them in the question panel and we'll be sure to uh, keep this pretty informal and uh, ask Cindy along the way. Uh, so yeah, to get started, um, maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, what is DFIR? Uh, you know, I, I have a little bit of knowledge about it, you know, through some of the courses that we teach here at InfoSec, but uh, I guess how would you explain uh, what it is that you do, Cindy, to someone? <laughs> well, um, I, there are all sorts of technical explanations, but I, I think um, one of the best ways to explain it is to say that if you want a career where you're never, ever going to be bored, um, this might be a good career to look at. Uh, it is ever-changing, ever-growing, um, and ever-expanding. And um, so while what we do is investigate um, incidents that happen on computer networks or individual um, computers, um, we, look at, we look at data to try to recreate what happened um, or to try to figure out the, the root cause of an incident um, and to try to help um, an individual or a company or an organization um, better secure their their uh, networks. Um, really, that can include, um, you know, endless sorts of things. Um, you have to have a little bit of knowledge um, about all sorts of different subjects, and there's a lot of specialization in the field. I mean, we're talking about everything from cell phones and SIM cards and flash memory to, um, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 50,000 machine networks. And so there's a lot of ground in this industry to cover um, and there's really um, you know aside from the technical portions of this work there's a lot of, of people work um, in other words uh, teaching people about social engineering and how to harden the, the human network against these attacks um, teaching people smart um, computing habits so um, so it's it's a great field, um, super interesting, and um, as broad or as narrow as you need it to be. Yeah, I guess when I think about it as an outsider, I always picture you guys as like uh, little digital Sherlock Holmes type characters. I, I don't know if, if you think that that's accurate. Is that, is that like yeah, a... Yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of digital Sherlock Holmes and a little bit of... Um, mad scientists, computer scientists, right? Um, there's a, a lot because computers, operating systems, technology are, are, are always changing. 
um, we often have to figure things out as we go. And that takes a great deal of um, problem solving, puzzle working, and, um, you know, so not only the investigative side of things, but from a, from a sleuth standpoint, but also um, from a scientific standpoint, what, what made that happen? How do I prove that that's what made that happen? Um, so, so it's a, a little bit detective and a little bit scientist. Yeah, so we have someone asking a question. Um, would you classify DFIR as a blue team? I, I would say blue team is part of DFIR, um, and so you know we have digital forensics, we have incident response, we have the 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 red teams that um, that look for and attack systems. The blue team, <laughs> we've got purple teams. Everybody is trying to wrap their wrap their. Um, their minds around this. So we have malware analysis that would fit in. We have um, all of those incident response pen tester roles, uh, proactive response roles. Um, so yeah, I would say those fit in. Network security is part of digital forensics and incident response um, because we have to have those knowledge bases um, in the jobs that are in this sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, before we get too far down the road into like the actual job duties, maybe we could sort of set the stage with, with how you got started and, you know, I guess, was it a career that you always wanted to pursue or something you kind of fell into or how'd you get involved? <laughs> well, funny you should say, uh, I, I literally fell into this career. Um, and so my path is maybe um, a, a little different than other people's might be. I um, I started in the military at, at, at 18 years old as, as a military police officer. Um, and policing is what I wanted to do with my life. I, I felt a call to serve. Um, and I'm also a very active person and um, and like to help people and like to figure things out. So, um, so I, I got into policing and um, started my digital forensics career in 1998 after um, being injured on duty and um, being assigned on light duty to help a um, an older detective, John Mulcahy is his name, um, who was uh, working on a one of the first computer crimes uh, ever investigated by Madison Police. Um, someone had stolen um, physical signatures out of historical books at the State Historical Library, and they were selling those on um, uh, on uh, bulletin boards uh, and news groups on on the um, you know uh, on the internet, uh, which was a very different place in the 1990s <laughs> than it is now. Um, and so that was the first investigation I worked on. At that point, um, there were no standardized methods for doing drive imaging. There were no standardized methods for um, for uh, for doing the investigations on that on that host machine to to um, to prove things. So it it uh, was uh, at the ground level. Um, 
it, it turned out um, that there were, was a computer system from MIT involved in this. And so one of my very first contacts in this investigation was with um, Owen Casey, who was at the time working um, at MIT. And obviously, um, he and I have developed a, a, a long-term friendship uh, past that. We really didn't figure out again until um, 2012 that one of um, one of my first investigations and his first investigations were were connected to each other. But um, but we had parallel paths as a result. So. Um, so lots of uh, of lucky pieces, but but really, I literally fell into it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I imagine it's changed quite a bit since you know stealing signatures <laughs> to uh, to now. <laughs> I mean, probably a huge question, but is there anything you know you think is like the biggest change or has has had the biggest impact on on professionals? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, Moore's Law, right, the, the size of the hard drives getting huger and huger over time and the amount of data that we're dealing with over time has um, has just increased exponentially. Um, I, around that same time, 1998, my, uh, my father gave me a one... Um, a gigabyte hard drive for Christmas. This is the amount of change we've gone through since the 90s and said, that's the largest drive you'll probably ever need. Um, my dad was not um, a, a stupid man and he was very um, computer savvy. He uh, um, was a professor at the University of Iowa and, uh, and uh, you know, was spending his time processing um, on um, on um, data cards and reel-to-reel -reel tape um, at, in the Blue Room at the University of Iowa, and so that's where I spent my formative years. But um, I don't think we understood in 2000, you know, in in the late mid to to late 90s, how things were going to look in 2020. Um, how things were going to look in 2019. Um, so, um, you know, whether it's it's cell phones and and um, and the fact that computing power has become ubiquitous around us um, in and in people's pockets everywhere they go. Um, or whether we're talking about just the amount of data collection that happens on any individual, all of those things um, have to do with the amount of data in the world. Um, so I, I think that's probably the biggest change. Uh, yeah, if we can, you know, maybe shift gears a little and talk about some of the potential careers. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, it's a it's a pretty wide field. There's tons of different stuff that you could do. Um, I guess in my mind, I've kind of broken it down into, you know, public sector versus private sector, and then maybe people who are doing more forensics versus responding to different types of incidents. I don't know if uh, if you'd break it down in a similar way, or how would you describe the different types of roles? Yeah, I think this is a this is a good broad breakdown. Um, um, public sector forensics um, is where I cut my teeth in the industry, um, and and maybe actually a, a harder place to get into um, in terms of starting a forensics career. Um, most police departments um, still operate on a. Um, 
seniority level. So, uh, so if you go um, into your career saying, "Hey, I want to become um, a, a a computer forensic examiner for a police department. I want to fight child exploitation in that way," you're likely going to have to become a police officer first. Um, and then you're going to likely have to work in the field as a police officer for several years before you're eligible to promote to a position where um, you're doing, um, you know, crime scene forensics um, or detective work and or uh, promote into a digital forensics position. So the, the structural setup of um, uh, law enforcement agencies is such that it makes it somewhat hard to break into that world unless you're wanting to be a cop too. Um, now that has started to change. There are regional crime labs and individual police departments that hire civilians specifically do, to do digital forensics work. So that is slowly changing. Um, I wish it would change faster. Um, and of course, at the uh, the state and federal levels, you may find um, direct entry civilian um, digital forensics um, work as well. So. Um, but yeah, this is usually doing cell phone forensics um, and computer forensics. So uh, looking at individual machines or um, sets of machines, um, devices like SIM cards and um, SD cards, and um, you, you know, you name it. Really, could be it could be anything um, for evidence of of a criminal um, activity. In the private sector, um, we we do um, uh, much the same work. We're supporting investigations into, um, you know, data theft, um, civil litigation work. Um, there's a lot of financial crimes that get, um, you know, prosecuted civilly rather than in the um, in the criminal courts. Um, we also do data breach investigations, um, look at insider threats, malware investigations, cyber security incidents, and those sorts of things. Um, we also support law enforcement. So um, at, at Gilware here, we do a, a, a certain amount of forensics still for law enforcement when um, law enforcement doesn't have the resources or there's some technical issue that they're unable to get around with the equipment and software they have. If they need um, you know, some cus custom work done, um, either repairing a device or um, uh, you know, some, some complex problem, they will come to a private company such as ours. Um, and then incident response would be um, support of um, those incident response issues, the, the cybersecurity incidents. Um, and, and so you can see these sort of cross back and forth into each other. And I, and I guess we also have, um, you know, those proactive sorts of roles, um, proactive services, uh, the folks who are doing the network security surveys ahead of time, the folks who are are doing pen testing and um, making sure networks are safe, um, as safe as possible before an incident happens. So, um, so that maybe fits into uh, there as well. There's, a, a, you know, there are no um, real borders between these jobs, which is probably good um, because my digital forensics um, 
experience uh, works really well when we're looking at um, incident response cases. Um, those skills that I learned about looking at registries, looking at link files, looking at you know whatever the forensic artifact is, um, all apply really well to incident response. Um, but um, but if if there were that um, you know that that wall between those jobs, um, it, it would be a lot less. There would be a lot less flexibility there. Yeah, I wonder if you could maybe like walk us through a, a particular case or a typical case, you know, like what is the process? You know, you, you mentioned like investigating stuff on computers and mobile devices, um, you know, like what's like, where do you start with that? And, you know, what's the goal? And then is it like a whole team of people doing it? Or is it one person that kind of handles one particular case? Or is there broken down by kind of activity that you're doing? Sure. Well, I, I think that's going to um, depend on the organization you're working for. In uh, here at Gilware, we're very collaborative, um, and we try to leverage um, the skills that our employees have um, to to work in teams on problems. Um, so, if we talk about a, a, a typical incident response kind of case, um, I'll take one of the most common, ransomware. Um, somebody has a ransomware attack, they've been affected by, you know, whatever the variant is. Um, and they will typically either come to us directly or through um, their insurance provider um, or um, through whatever the referral is. Um, but the first thing we're going to do is have a, um, what we call a scoping call to try to figure out um, the scope of that incident. And if, if we look at the incident response process, this is part of preparing and identifying, right? We're looking at, we're preparing for our investigation, but we're trying to identify the the, the scope of the incident, um, and we find out as much as we can. And you know, what are what are what is that network topography? How many machines are on that network? How many of those were affected? Um, we're trying to identify, um, you know, all of the the virtual and physical servers involved, all of the the um, the the workstations that are involved, um, and get a picture of of what that looks like from um, from from that standpoint, and then we're going to try to figure out, you know, what do they know about what happened? Um, has there been um, a progressive um, spam campaign ahead of this? Do we are we dealing with potentially Emotet or Trickbox that has dropped um, a, a Word document with PowerShell scripts, and and then that was the precipitating event to um, to the ransomware event. Um, you know, so we we sit down, we have that that call to identify um, uh, it, those sorts of factors. You know, who is going to be our main point of contact from a technical standpoint? Who is going to be our main contact from an administrative standpoint? Um, and what are their goals? What's most important to them to get back? Um, and also, what are their responsibilities? Um, are they in a field uh, or, or a sector where the where data is protected? Are they healthcare? Are, are they um, storing PII or payment information? And do they have a regulatory requirement um, to to report 
um, uh, and and in those cases, we're going to need to know more about. Um, uh, you know, we're going to have to do a deeper investigation to see whether um, data was exfiltrated, um, whether it left that network, um, and so we're we're going to have to do um, forensic examinations on a number of of workstations and and servers in that environment. Um, and so once we have that scoping call taken care of. Um, we then work on um, identifying what we need to collect immediately um, and how we're going to do that. Um, at the same time, we're um, working on trying to contain and eradicate and recover um, from the incident. So there's a lot going on in those first, um, you know, 24 hours or so. Um, and it may include engaging with um, a ransomer um, to start again that process of negotiating a ransom doesn't necessarily mean we're going to pay it, but we want to get the information we can from that incident about what's um, about what's involved in, in that side. So, um, so a lot's going on. Uh, once we get that data in, then we're looking for specific samples of um, of malware in that system, both from um, the standpoint of that that initial infection vector. Um, we're looking for how their systems were breached, and we're also looking for that executable file that was the ransomware. Um, we want to know if if it is um, capable of data exfiltration, um, or if something ahead of time was capable of data exfiltration. And then we we just work it through, and it's it's you know, you have to remind yourself, how do you, it's, it's the old proverb, how do you eat an elephant? Um, one spoonful at a time, right? You take this huge problem and you break it down into the smallest, most important parts and you tackle them one at a time. Um, so obviously this is easier with a, with a team of people who specialize in different areas. Um, and um, and we have folks who are um, really good at looking at malware, folks who are really good at, um, at encryption problems, folks who are really good at um, if we get a decryptor and it doesn't work right, um, modifying that decryptor. Um, so that it will work right. Um, and we have folks that are really good at the, the part about containment and eradication. Um, are we going to deploy Carbon Black or Sophos or, uh, or another tool um, on, that, on that network? Um, do they already have one deployed? Um, do they even know what all their endpoints are? And you'd be surprised at how often they don't. Um, so there's, like I said, a lot going on. And um, so those those blue team, red team, purple team, um, you know, pen testing experiences um, can all be brought to bear um, to to give us to give us a a good broad perspective um, on on efficiently and effectively responding to the problem. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's a, you know, a lot of different pieces along that process. Is there any particular spot that or type of work that you enjoy doing the most when it comes to that or anything that you enjoy doing the least? Um, so my, you know, it's it's a question of that word enjoyment, right? Like it's all of us. Um, I I enjoy doing the things I know the best, which is um, host machine forensics, right? Like figuring out um, what what and when um, what the breach was when it happened, um, and then what the bad guys did when they were in the machines. 
um, how they moved laterally across um, from machine to machine. Um, but I also enjoy being out of my comfort zone, right? So, um, so working with and learning from the folks who are doing that um, containment and eradication side of things is really rewarding for me. Um, in law enforcement, um, so you know, 31 years of uh, you know, first try not to change anything, right? Like make sure make sure you're not changing that original evidence. When we get into incident response cases. Um, we're going to be making changes, right? We have to in order to secure the network that that we can't totally bring down while we're doing the investigation. So, um, so all of it for me is um, enjoyable, and I um, I really really uh, enjoy um, looking at the malware itself, um, trying to um, you know decompile it, unpack it, look at what's going on underneath the surface, um, and while I'm not a programmer, um, it's it's really interesting for me to to look at um, what's there and to try to figure out what's what's happening. And obviously, there are great tools for that that help us do that. Some of them free. You know, there's you know all sorts of sandboxes out there that will will pull things apart and and give you more information about them. But I I like it all. That's why I'm still doing it all this time later. <laughs> yeah, well, that's always good. Uh, yeah, I, th I think maybe we should talk a little bit about um, how people can get started or, you know, I guess you, you mentioned you have a, a pretty strong team, different, I imagine, you know, you're hiring people. Um, so, you know, people who are listening, whether they're here live or going to, you know, watch or listen on demand later. Um, is there anything in particular that you look for? You know, I guess we could start with like the education standpoint when it comes to digital forensics. Do you prefer people... Um, do you think you get a lot of value out of, you know, going to school and getting a degree or do you look for certifications or anything along those lines? So I, I think all of those, all of the educational options are, um, are good ones. Um, when you're in a digital forensics uh, position where you're likely to be in court, um, uh, doing straight machine forensics or doing civil litigation work um, in the private sector or um, in law enforcement, having formal training, certification, um, and formal education is really helpful for building your your curriculum vitae, your CUV, um, and showing the court um, your background and expertise in an area. Um, it, it looks better to a jury, to a judge, to attorneys to have that formalized education. Um, but that doesn't mean that's the end all be all, right? Um, I ended up um, learning very experientially um, to start with um, in, in my um, formative years and then um, moved to a more formalized training through um, National White Collar Crime Center, through um, um, what was an end case and um, FTK through through those vendor supported um, training programs through the Sands Institute um, and then decided hey I keep learning these same things over and over again I kind of want to go beyond that and decided to do my master's degree in forensic computing and cyber crime um, through University College in Dublin um, all of that was um, was focused on building my credentials as an individual, but also building my um, my knowledge at, about um, 
about what I was doing as I was doing it. Um, informal training, though, can't be underestimated either. Those people who come in as a candidate who have some formalized education but are also running their own personal sandbox, they've set up their own network, they've, uh, they have they might be running a honeypot or they might be experimenting with some um, some uh, some scripting or uh, or some uh, you know they've they've got hobbies they're in the tech area um, those those people are really interesting to us because it shows that not only are they going to school to do this but they're also interested in it outside of their formal education um, so I think a mix of those things is is really good. Um, I, I'm um, while I have a law enforcement background, I realize that um, that many hackers are are not criminals, right? Like they're just curious human beings who are exploring technology deeply and figuring out how to do things. Um, I um, I I probably, if I weren't in law enforcement, would have been considered a hacker growing up. Um, so, so that's so that's not a negative thing. Um, but it it is something where people have to be able to fit those um, those tendencies into some some rules and restrictions and boundaries, right? Because you can't even you can't either in the um, private sector or the public sector just do what you want, right? Like you, there has to be um, some some structure wrapped around all of it. But I think both um, formal and informal education are important. Um, Want to just move on to skills? Um, sure. Well, one question I had was a lot of the people that we talk to, or you know, when you see surveys about uh, like cybersecurity professionals, there seems to be a, a lot of confusion, or I guess uncertainty about career mm -hmm. paths. You know, as you mentioned, there's just so many different things even within digital forensics you can do. So didn't know if you had any advice for, you know, people who are listening or maybe, you know, they, they're interested in the field, but they're, you know, not sure, you know, which of the dozen sub roles is, is for them. Is there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think um, trying to balance yourself between good general knowledge and um, some specific subset of interest, um, you know, some specialization is, is a positive thing. Um, you don't want to walk into a job interview and say, hey, I'm an expert at cell phone forensics and I want to do a job um, that is primarily incident response. You can be an expert at cell phone forensics and that's a really great experience, but I also am going to want you to know a lot about incident response. See what I mean? So, mm -hmm. um, so make sure you get that good broad coverage um, in your educational background, um, but also pursue the things that interest you. And you're going to find that somebody needs that area of, of expertise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about like certain skills, um, is there any like particular tools that people should know like, that are generally used a lot in the field or any particular skills or processes or, you know, kind of anything that, hey, if you're in this field, you should you should really be able to talk about this, at least at the surface level. Oh, see, now you and I are going to go in really different directions on this. Um, <laughs> so I want people who have hard skills and soft skills. I want people who are able to talk to other people and explain difficult concepts mm -hmm. in simple ways. Um, I want people who are good at writing 
um, who have good grammar and who write clearly and concisely um, and can express technical things in simple words on paper. Um, and, and I want people who can present to non-technical people what they've learned um, about the technology. Um, I want people who are curious, people who are passionate about what they do, um, and, and people who are flexible, um, flexible enough to say, I don't know that, but I'm going to learn it. Um, I, I haven't done that before, but I want to, right? Um, and so, th yes, there are tools that are used all of the time in this field. Um, you know, we, but if you've used one forensic suite, um, you should be flexible enough to take those skills and figure out how to use another, right? Um, not to say that you're going to become an expert at it, but if you've been using NCASE and um, and you walk into an organization where they primarily use um, something else, whether it's Magnet or whether it's um, X-Ways or, or Forensic Explorer, um, I'm hoping that you are going to have enough technical savvy and intuitive knowledge of user interfaces to figure out the software. Um, I'm more interested in your problem solving behind that. When you use that software, what are you looking at? Um, what are you tearing apart? And, um, and what are you digging deeper into? Um, if you see what I mean. So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, you need to use, you need to learn the basics. You can learn the basics of imaging through, you know, FTK Imager. Um, the next time you use a different tool to do your imaging, um, those concepts should be there. I'm going to have a, 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 um, a, my original evidence. I'm going to have a target device. I need to know how to set up the the path to both of those and then make the software work and then I need to know to go back and verify my image um, and and what that means um, conceptually right but those concepts um, are, are supported by the different kinds of, of software that we use and I um, I don't want someone who knows NCASE so well that they don't have enough flexibility to go and use a different tool mm -hmm. if you know what I mean so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so rather than teaching the tools, I would I would like to see people with a, a, a broad um, a, a broad level of knowledge that um, that whatever tool they have access to, they're going to use that to figure out what they need to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so. So yeah, and I guess another thing is I I like people who read. Uh, um, people don't read enough <laughs> these days, and I mean we could go back to um, uh, RTFM. Um, I, I won't you know won't say the acronym out loud, but um, uh, reading um, and having a voracious appetite for reading um, means that you're going to be able to figure things out. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we find a lot of people that end up shortcutting. Um, they, they want to be hand-fed an answer in 40 characters or less, and um, that's not always possible, especially when we're looking at, at uh, some of the more complex um, you know, systems and, and uh, concepts involved in, in these fields. Yeah, we did some research earlier this year, and we found that I think it was 92% of, of all the InfoSec professionals we surveyed said they're learning new skills every single month. So it sounds like that's kind of, 
I, I guess I hear that from a lot of people I talk to. That's really what they're looking for more when hiring is people who are curious and want to learn and are willing to, you know, kind of continually learn all those new things. That's yeah, and I, I mean, and the, the goal should be for anybody who's teaching in this field to teach people how to learn, right? Like teach people how to do basic science right like how to test things and and change one variable at a time and and rerun your test and see what changed and and figure things out so if if you're a person who knows how to learn new things you're you're going to be successful in this field mm -hmm. yeah we have another question that came in from looks like cynthia um, she asked if there's uh, is there any demand for digital forensics professionals right now? I mean, I would assume the answer is probably oh, yes, but uh, I don't know, maybe it, you yes. could put that in context of like over your career. Is there more demand now or, or less or how do you? There is there is huge demand for um, for digital forensics, incident response um, and network security folks. Um, uh, not only in the private sector, but in the public sector, there's a huge shortage of uh, people with these skill sets, um, with the technical skill sets and those soft skills. Um, those two things together are are super important. But um, if we just take my company, um, Gilware has been around for three and a half years, roughly. Um, and in that first year, um, it was me doing the forensics and then um, and Nathan Little came on board to do forensics as well. Um, and these days we are hiring um, literally three to six people per month and we need more. We need more good candidates at all levels and um, I'm talking about people who want to get in into this job at the entry level um, as interns or co-ops, uh, people who um, have a tiny bit of experience and want, um, you know, want to get in as a beginning forensics um, or incident response person, um, people who have that experience and, and want to um, do it at, at a, a higher level and run their own cases, run their own scoping calls um, and, um, you know, work at the direct level and and also people who want to support this work um, folks who can answer phones and and speak intelligently to the questions that are that our customers are asking or prospective customers are asking um, and people who have the skills to do the marketing work in this area um, um, so people who have the skills to organize the evidence right like we need all of those those functions um, and we're also looking for people who have general IT skills skills um, to help us after an incident um, help our customers get back to where they need to be in a secure way um, so so and and you know the, our, our proactive services side is is also um, looking for people so we are growing as fast as we can um, in this uh, field um, I don't think it's too controversial for me to say that um, among incident response and forensics companies, we aren't competitors with each other for getting work. There's more work out there than any of us can handle on our own. We're competitors in terms of getting people. 
Um, so, so you will see a, a, a lot of cybersecurity companies trying to poach each other's people, uh, and that shouldn't necessarily uh, that wouldn't necessarily be the case if we had enough. Um, folks coming um, coming in with the the skills and um, and educational uh, um, background um, that that we need. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a huge demand. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the like entry level stuff because that seems to be I guess a little bit of the I don't know pushback or stuff you hear. You know, when you go on forums, a lot of people like they you know, they know there's a lot of opportunity in cybersecurity and they want to break in, but, you know, maybe they have a little bit of difficulty kind of like seeing the path in. Um, so, you know, maybe talking a little bit about experience, is there anything in particular that, you know, someone can do to like start getting that experience? I know you mentioned, you know, like setting up honeypots and things, but if someone wanted to sort of, you know, stand out from the crowd so that way they apply for an entry-level job. Is there anything in particular you look for um, along those lines? Yeah, I mean, there are, a, a, and I think there is a disconnect here, right? We keep talking about all of these jobs, but people say, hey, I, I put my application out there and nobody nobody picks me. Um, I think part of this is those, uh, again, those soft skills. If you want to stand out in this crowd, um, take the time to send a thank you card after you get an interview. You'll probably get hired. That's That's my tip for people. Okay, so I don't know how many people are, are currently or will be listening to this, but if you want to stand out, work on those people skills, like connect with the people that you're trying to apply with, um, because that will make you stand out in the crowd. Um, send a physical card, send an email follow up take the time to to pick up the phone and call back afterwards um, and keep your name um, and your resume at the top of that pile um, have a resume that doesn't look like everybody else's resume right um, and and really focus on um, uh, on bringing out your um, your quirks and your humanity in that resume um, it, it's really effective because if if we're looking through resumes, your resume, honestly, the first time around is probably going to get five minutes or less time in review. Um, people are going to look and if you have exactly the same experience as everybody else in that pile, if there's something that makes you stick out, whether it's um, volunteering um, in um, in your local school to help people who um, who need to have malware cleaned off their computers, or whether it's uh, I'm trying to think of some whether it's volunteering um, to uh, help secure a network, or whether it's an internship at a police department in the forensics lab, or whether it's um, you know those those sorts of things. You have to be a little bit creative and and put yourself put yourself out there and I think you also um, have to ex express that willingness to do anything um, people misinterpret sometimes those entry-level positions as um, I'm, I'm applying for this position this is this is what this is the position I want um, and if we've already made a selection for that position and you haven't said hey I will literally do anything in your company to get to get my foot in the door, um, the person who says that is probably going to get hired before you. 
<laughs> so um, so don't just because there's a job description out there or um, or you've applied for a particular position make sure you make it clear that you're really basically willing um, to, to do other job roles in order to get your foot through the door um, yeah let's uh, we got you know about 10 or 15 minutes left here uh, maybe we could um, share just a couple more examples of types of things that um, types of cases or interesting things that you work on. I know we talked a little bit about ransomware. Uh, one interesting thing that kind of piqued my attention was in your bio, you talked about business email compromise. So uh, I like, I know that's extremely common. I'm just curious how that relates to, you know, forensics and incident response and, and anything you do do around that. Sure. I, well, and it also relates to ransomware. Um, so uh, as people know, phishing, um, whether it's spear phishing or the regular variety is just absolutely rampant and um, many of um, those phishing attempts um, either come with a weaponized attachment or with a, a link to go provide your credentials. Those credentials when harvested can then be used to um, to um, get into somebody's uh, account and then set up forwarding rules um, or uh, or to add new users um, and at, at that point um, generally an attacker will sit in an email system and just monitor and then at a auspicious time jump into a conversation and redirect funds um, or um, or use that information to to move further into a network and out of the email system um, and we often see that those business email compromise cases um, come hand in hand with um, a subsequent ransomware attack um, and so it's just a chain in the monetization of of that um, that compromise and um, and so oftentimes when those business email compromise cases come in it'll be hey um, you know I, I work for such and such a company we've had a um, we had a, a wire transfer fraud, you know, for $1.3 million and we need to know where it came from because um, while it says it came from this email address, we're not seeing it in in the inbox and in the outbox where we can't find this email. What happened? Um, and so we'll see uh, upon, you know, further investigation that um, that they had a relationship with a vendor. Um, Somebody found out about this relationship from a vendor because it was proudly announced on a website someplace, and so they developed an email address one letter off, or you know something similar to that, and just cold emailed in um, and started into a conversation and said, "Hey, you know, we've changed our." bank account information due to um, fraudulent activity. Here is the new um, routing number and bank account number. So the next time you pay the invoice, um, send it here. Um, and then 
nobody catches that it came from the wrong email address. It gets forwarded to the the finance folks who think they're taking an instruction from um, from someone above them, and they dutifully change the um, you know the bank account number and the routing information. And the next time that invoice gets paid, it gets paid to someone who it shouldn't go to. And a couple months later, when the legitimate company says, "Hey, this invoice went unpaid." we need to collect and they go, nope, we paid that. Then people figure out something happened, right? So so there's, you know, kind of a, a man in the middle attack there, um, but it's a very common sort of attack. Um, we also get, um, you know, straight up data theft investigations. Um, you know, um, we have hired a new employee. Um, the employee came to us from a different company. Um, and we've just received a, um, a a letter telling us that we have to hold all data associated with this person because uh, because they took data with them when they left their previous company. Um, or, you know, alternatively, we believe when this guy left or this gal left, they took with them um, our proprietary information. Um, and, and so in that case, we're looking for, you know, there's a traditional forensics role there. We're looking for um, around the time the person left, did they insert a USB device to that computer? Are there link files showing what they accessed? Um, did any of that material end up on the new employer's, um, you know, network? Um, was there a cloud account involved? Um, you know, those those sorts of things. So, um, so that's it's pretty general, but um, but it gives you an idea. We also get, um, you know, occasionally the spy versus spy sort of case. Um, I I am a reporter for a national level um, a news outlet, and I believe that that someone has been um, intercepting my emails. They know where I'm at, where I'm going to be. They know um, confidential information that's provided to me by a source. Um, and so we will look at computers sometimes looking to see if there's there's been spyware involved. Sometimes it has to do with a, with a, a, a firmware um, Compromise, um, and or or something like that. Uh, we also um, will look at um, uh, very level, low level at uh, at flash memory. Um, what's going on underneath the flash translation layer? Can we recover? Um, data from um, flash memory, even if our forensics tools show us um, that it's all zeros? And the answer is yes, yes, you can, um, which is which is really part of the reason uh, I left law enforcement to come to the private sector, um, is that realization that there's a lot possible that, that I was unaware of. Um, and so, you know, it was the lure of something new to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it looks like we're getting pretty close to the end here. So if uh, you guys have any other questions, feel free to throw them in the chat. I know we got a few coming in that Camille's monitoring. Um, before we get to questions, I uh, just wanted to mention that uh, anyone who's watching today um, gets a, a free week of training with InfoSec skills. There's a couple ways you can train with InfoSec. We have our InfoSec Flex Boot Camps with you know, different digital forensics and computer mobile forensics incident response boot camps. 
Uh, but then we also have our uh, new product that we launched this year, InfoSec Skills, which um, I think is really great for people trying to really explore forensics because you can go in and there's, you know, more than 500 courses and you can just kind of play around and, you know, try to get a sense of, of what you're like if, you know, if you're one of those people who maybe is a, a bit uncertain on, you know, what career is for you. So uh, if you go to infosecinstitute.com slash skills, um, uh, you can sign up free week and then it's 34 bucks a month after that if you want to keep going after your free week is up. Um, but with that, I will pass it over to Camille. She's monitoring the questions, and uh, we'll close out with that. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Um, and thank you, Cindy, so much for being on the webinar with us today. It's it's really been, you know, interesting. And just to kind of hear about your job transition and, and kind of where you came from has really been um, interesting and I think, you know, inspiring. And, and coming from that, a lot of the questions are, are still regarding um, employment in the cybersecurity field. Um, so again, I know you said it's it's changed quite a bit, but um, I think people are still kind of looking here, looking at some of the questions um, about getting into the field with, you know, in terms of digital forensics, forensics and incident response, what are those, um, you know, technical certifications, if you're familiar with any that, that would pop out to you on a, on a resume or, um, just those technical skills. I know we kind of discussed this earlier, but if you have any more insight there, that'd be great. Sure. So I, I think that um, that any certification you have is is not a negative thing. And I think that right. depending on the the job function you're going for, you may find that there are requirements to have particular certifications. Um, if your resume comes across my desk and you uh, are a certified, um, uh, you know, if you've got your ENCE, I, I know you're going to have basic skills in um, in using NCASE to do forensics. If you've, uh, you know, if you're certified with FTK, I'll know you've got basic skills with that tool. Um, you know, I, it tells me something if you've done your CISSP, right? Like those things do help you to stand out. Um, and you, if you have a particular job that you absolutely want to go after and they have a requirement, that makes sense to get that particular, um, that particular thing. That being said, after, um, you know, 30, you know, well, 20, 20 plus years in forensics and incident response and, um, and 30 years in law enforcement, um, I understand that there are some people with zero certifications that are extremely good at this work. And there are people who have alphabet soup behind their name who spend all of their time working on their certifications and none of their time actually um, practicing the work and certifying for this work and doing this work are two very different things. So, um, so I, while I will um, place a certain amount of weight on the fact that somebody's taken the time and the effort to do a certification and to get recertified, um, and I know that it it shows they have a basic level of knowledge and and or skills in a particular area, it's it's never going to be the total differentiating factor for me. Um, and those differentiating factors um, for me as an employer looking at bringing people on have to do more with, with a combination of the technical knowledge and skills and the people knowledge and skills. Are, are you good on the phone? Can you explain things that are hard in a way that's easy to understand? Um, do you write well? 
um, or am I going to have to worry about every report that goes out the door? Um, you know, is it is it going to take us a lot more time in peer review um, of reports? Uh, so, so again, um, if you're super good at the at the at the very technical stuff and you you aren't able to express yourself well in in writing um, or verbally, um, it it makes it harder um, to make the decision to hire somebody. Um, but if you have a combination of those skills um, and some certifications, uh, that's that's certainly um, going to be a good solid candidate. Sure. Thanks, Cindy. I think that's some some really nice advice. And I think that that's, that's something that's starting to be a little bit more recognized in the industry is is those soft skills, right? Um, yes. So I think I think that that's, you know, important. I know we have um, an industry friend who who says she tech, um, she translates geek speak. Um, yes. And, and I think that that's kind of a, a fun way of saying it, but also um, really important for those that are looking for jobs um, and if, looking to get into I the industry. Sure, if I can just hop in and say one last thing um, while we have right. a little time. Yes. Um, some people say, or they say, but you can't teach me that, right? Like you can't teach me to, to be comfortable speaking or to say things more simply or to um, or to express myself better in writing. I'm either good at it or I'm not. And I'm here to tell you, those are things you can learn as well. So, um, so, it, it, so, so for people who know they're strong in the technical areas, but um, have some concerns about those soft skills, those are definitely things you can learn. Sure. Thank you, Cindy. That's that's um, good advice, and I think that answers several of the questions. You know, kind of in the in the question panel. So thank you, everyone who participated and and asked questions today. Um, so this is kind of wrapping up our session here. Um, so once more, thank you, Cindy and Jeff, for a really a fascinating presentation today, and also to everyone for joining the webinar and, and those asking questions and participating in that way too. Um, so as we wrap up here, just wanted to let you know that you can watch for the recording of the webinar coming in your email soon. Uh, and if you'd like more information right away about InfoSec, you can head over to our website, infosecinstitute.com, or you can call to speak with a rep, you know, if you're interested in a course or anything. Um, thanks again to Cindy Murphy from Gilware for joining us. I hope you enjoyed today's webinar. Just as a reminder, many of our podcasts also contain video components, which can be found at our YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com and type in CyberWork with InfoSec to check out our collection of tutorials, interviews, and other webinars. And as ever, search CyberWork with InfoSec in your podcast app of choice for more episodes. Thanks once again to Cindy Murphy and Jeff Peters, and thank you all for listening. We'll speak to you next week. How about some free cybersecurity training resources for you and your team? Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get ebooks, training guides, and more than 100 cybersecurity training courses, all free for cyber work listeners. Go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning crucial new skills today.